Good morning to everybody. Um, I wanted to share, uh, I guess on behalf of George and Sue Ann, some good news. Um, speaking earlier this morning with George, um, some of you will be aware uh, and mindful of uh, prayer requests that have been made for Colin over in South Australia, uh, South, South Australia, South, a bit further than South Australia, South Africa, um, and um, uh, prayers for his well-being, uh, recovering from surgery, and he has ongoing struggles, health struggles. Uh, Sue Ann's brother, and it seems that um, uh, a brother in particular in South Africa has stepped up and made a big difference in Colin's life. And in a sense, Colin's gone from quite a, a dark place uh, where there wasn't a great deal of hope for the future to now he has good reason to look forward to a bright future. And of course, that's a blessing not just for Colin, but of course takes a, a load off the shoulders of concern for uh, for George and Sue Ann and the family as well. So just a, a, a wonderful blessing that's worth highlighting and uh, and praising God for. And it's connected with discipleship because I guess it's just a simple illustration of the way that God works through his people when his people step up to act in love towards their brothers and sisters. And this morning we're actually we're actually continuing what's turned out by God's providence, the third in a series of lessons on discipleship. Many of you will remember just last week, Larry uh, led in a, in a lesson, and I've got a quick a quick summary here. He focused, you remember, upon the contrast between the concept of being a Christian, the term Christian, as opposed to the term disciple. And look at those numbers. Uh, a very obvious and significant difference between the two. We need to appreciate the importance of uh, discipling, discipleship, as scripture itself, God himself places emphasis there. And of course, disciple, you remember, we define it in terms of a follower. Um, a, I, I like the term apprentice. You might remember several weeks ago, uh, a lesson that I began in discipleship. And uh, the, I, I tried to emphasise, among other things, the, the idea of apprenticeship. That is, we seek as disciples, as followers of Christ, to learn from him, yes, to obey him, yes, but more importantly, all of that towards the goal of becoming like him, just as an apprentice seeks to become like the master and themselves in time become a master. So that's the nature of Christian discipleship. And, and Larry gave us a very useful and succinct definition of what it is to be a disciple, a, a person who has dedicated their life to becoming like Jesus by following his teaching and putting selfless love in action just like Jesus himself did. Now, this morning, I'm so glad that um, Craig raised the issue of uh, Geelong cats and because it, it reminds me of an important distinction. Being a disciple clearly then is not just about being a fan of Jesus. If we're going to think in those terms, we've got to think of being a participant, being a player. And I want to just sort of put that matter to uh, to rest by just making the observation, yes, we're happy for you, Craig, but it would have been a lot better and a lot more of us would have been happy if it was the lions and not the cats. Discipleship, of course, is, is, is a process and that was a particular point that I was trying to emphasise several weeks ago before I was rudely interrupted by the clock. I want to refer your memories back to the uh, Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth, says Jesus, has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the end of the age. And here we notice discipleship is a process. And I'd like you to think in terms of 
organic growth. And we notice this, this flow, this process. Go and make disciples. Go and make apprentices of all the nations. Uh, in Mark's account, he just puts it in terms of go and preach the gospel to every creature. Baptising them. Make disciples. Baptise them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the process continues, teaching them to obey King Jesus. Illustrate it this way. Um, oh, just a side note, their discipleship, of course, is a, is a repeating cycle. The idea of we, 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 we bring up a disciple, we train them, and they mature to the point where they become teachers themselves. And so this cyclic motion continues through history. As Jesus said, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus anticipated this process once put into motion would continue down through the ages until his return. So, again, with the organic theme, a healthy organism grows. It leads to its its own reproduction. That's really as simple as it as it is. Uh, to illustrate it this way, discipleship is a process of growth from seed to fruition. We begin with the hearing of the gospel, the seed, on a biological model, the conception, if you will, where life is conceived. The influence of the gospel, the outcome, and we know from Jesus' teaching in the parable of the source, for example, that the outcome for different people is very different. Some Jesus described as, a, as that hard path, that impenetrable path where the word of God just falls but it never has an opportunity to to germinate and give life. Others, again, you remember all the various different responses all the way through to the good and honest soil as Jesus described it, which brings us to the point that you remember again a number of weeks ago, we focused upon those 12 disciples at Ephesus who'd been taught by Apollos And we noted here, critical for my purposes this morning, we noted here that the disciple, the idea of being a disciple, and that's why I've headed it there, hearing the gospel, the idea of conception. A disciple is not necessarily yet a child of God. A disciple is not necessarily yet a child of God. And I use as an example of that those 12 disciples at Ephesus, you remember the story how Apollos earlier in Acts chapter 18, Apollos is there and, and he encounters uh, Priscilla and Aquila or Priscilla and Aquila encounter, encounter him. He's preaching to the people, preaching Jesus to the people. But you remember there was one thing, one failing in his teaching, in his understanding and therefore in his communication of the gospel. He knew only the, 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 the baptism of John. But Priscilla, we note respectfully, tactfully take Apollos aside and explain to him that wonderful phrase. They explain to him the way of the Lord more fully, more completely. And then we're told that Apollos moves on to Corinth. In comes Paul and he encounters these 12 disciples and, and again, we haven't got the time to sort of rehash where we were a few weeks ago, but you'll remember how Paul, I suggest, is very tactful in his approach to them because he's aware that, that there are some here that are disciples, yes, following Jesus, but, but, but defective in their understanding to the point where they're falling short. And so he encounters these disciples very tactfully, I would argue, asks that critical question. Have you heard or have you received the Spirit of God? And it's, we haven't even heard of the Spirit of God. Ah, this sounds like Apollos before he knew the way of the Lord more perfectly. And so Paul proceeds to teach them. And so they are baptised, not according to John's baptism, but baptised according to the Great Commission into the name, remember, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. How could one have engaged in Christian baptism and say they've not even heard of the Holy Spirit. You see the disconnect there and the way that Paul so tactfully weaves it together to bring them to the fullness of the truth. 
To my mind, that's very critical. One thing I remember in particular from Larry's lesson last week was his observation that, you know, when he, when he presents a lesson, very often he, he addresses questions that are important to him. Things that, things that, that I might struggle with. And in that struggle, one can reasonably assume that others likewise are going to struggle with those sorts of issues. And that's where I want to hone uh, or focus our attention today. We come to that crossing of the line, as it were, obeying the gospel, uh, where faith is expressed in repentance and baptism, what scripture describes as the new birth. But then the process continues, of course, the maturing in the gospel. You might think of uh, concepts like cross-shaped living, bearing the fruit of the spirit. And then, of course, there's the goal, the ultimate goal of the gospel, the, the God's purpose for bringing his son into this world, God's purpose for allowing his son to suffer and die as he did so that we can be redeemed in this life now, but also in anticipation of the life to come. In what the Apostle John describes in Revelation as new heavens and new earth, when all of creation will be fully redeemed according to God's ultimate purpose. But notice that process, that movement from the very beginning when the seed is, is planted through to ideally when the seed germinates and leads to, and you know, I, I increasingly like the term allegiance for an understanding of the biblical term faith. Trust is pretty good, but that sense of allegiance, I declare my allegiance. I believe perhaps for a long time I've had some sort of understanding about Jesus and God for some, but now I've reached a point where I declare my allegiance to King Jesus and I'm willing to turn my, literally, repentance, meant to I turn my head around, as it were, to change my thinking to change my direction in life and to be buried with Christ. And what rich imagery that is. The very thing that God has orchestrated in history in bringing his son to suffer, to die, to be buried, but to be raised on the third day. We imitate that. We engage with that. We make Jesus' experience the core, if you will, of the gospel, we make that our own. Many people put it in terms of following Paul's language in Romans chapter 6. It's at that point we die with Christ. It's at that point where we, where we encounter the blood of Christ. And just as Christ was raised from the grave, so we are raised from a watery grave to walk in newness of life. And ideally it won't be a stillbirth. It will be a birth that will grow on to maturity throughout the rest of our lifetime, all lived in expectation and anticipation of the Lord's return. Now, we get to some applications that are of particular interest to me and I'm assuming are of interest to you. You remember we finished in, in the lesson several weeks ago a, a very brief history lesson and I want to just quickly revise that so that we've got this picture in our mind. We've got there, of course, the body of Christ and I really love this ancient phrase that was used among the, the early church to describe the church, the one body of Christ, the one singular Holy, that's not perfection, that's not moral perfection, but it is talking about a people separated to God who are engaged in the process of sanctification, growing in Christ's likeness. Apostolic, following the teaching and the traditions as they were established by Jesus' own, hand-picked, hand-trained, Holy Spirit-equipped, Leaders of the church. From Acts chapter 2, as we read on that Pentecost, right through to the present day, as Paul put it in Ephesians 2, build upon, 
we as the church, even today, build upon the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. The one holy apostolic Catholic, with a little c you'll notice, that's, that simply means universal. The one holy apostolic universal church. And of course, even in the first century, we know that there were heretical groups and apostates, people who began the walk but then fell away. But notice too, I've deliberately got the body of Christ there mottly, mottled. It's not, it's not just one homogenic sort of picture, as it were. As sometimes we might idealise it in our minds. And, and for example, Important, I think, to bear in mind a very fundamental biblical principle that reaches way back to the experience of ancient history, ancient Israel, sorry, and, 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 and often raised in the preaching of the prophets of old, the righteous remnant. In Paul's letter to the church at Rome, he put it in these terms, not all Israel is of Israel. Not all of Israel. Not all of those that are biologically the descendants of Abraham are Israel, the people of God, the people of faith walking in the steps of Father Abraham. And so too, throughout history, I would argue that same principle, the righteous remnant has applied. Not all those who say, I'm of Christ, are truly of Christ. Disciples, maybe, maybe, to some degree, but there's a difference between being a disciple and being born as a child of God through faith in Christ Jesus, through allegiance to Christ Jesus. Think, for example, of the seven churches of Asia that John describes, that Jesus describes as he addresses them in the beginning of Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Seven churches, and what a diversity there is among just that sampling of seven churches in the first century. That's what I mean by this idea of motley group. Well, they were all built upon that same foundation. But some were flirting with other teachings, other philosophies. Some that, that it's, so, it's so long ago, we, it's lost to us. The, 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 the sin of the Nicolaitans, who knows what that is? Well, no one knows exactly what that is it seems but they were they were to some degree flirting with other ideas other teachings etc some of them would simply well how did john or jesus put it in addressing the church they'd lost their first love how could a church lose its first love how could a church operate as a church without its first love the church at philadelphia was lukewarm neither hot nor cold, a motley bunch, you get the picture. There is no idealised, perfect church. But despite their imperfection, they were one holy, apostolic, Catholic or universal church. We have... Constantine, and I, and I think Constantine was a watershed in the history of the church where the church went from being a marginalised, illegal religion to becoming the favoured religion of the state of Rome. And all of a sudden, where in previous centuries you could be persecuted even under death for your profession to follow Christ... All of a sudden now, if you profess to be a Christian, you needed to do that to get on in civil life in Rome because that's, that was the favoured by Caesar. And so as I describe it here, the institutionalisation of the church. And so we've got the first of the ecumenical councils, uh, the Council of Nicaea in 325. And, and I, I refer that to that because it was significant as the first creed the first institutional expression of, 
of the church. Then, of course, skipping on forward in history, uh, 1053 AD, we've got the Great Schism, the division between the, the East and the West. And then, of course, we've got the Protestant Reformation, 1517, as it's usually marked with, the, with Luther's um, uh, nailing those theses to the, 95 theses to the, uh, the church building doors at Wittenberg. And out of that, of course, grows the Lutheran and the Anglican Church. And we could think of groups like the Methodist Church, which was a Reformation movement within Anglicanism. We can think of the likes of Calvin and the Reformed Churches, the Presbyterian Churches. And then you've got the Baptist Churches. And then, of course, scattered throughout this, there have been those who've been saying, well, we don't want to be a particular brand of Christian. We just want to be, can I put it this way, a no-brand Christian? Is that, is that, does that sit okay? It sounds a bit plain, doesn't it? But I guess that's the point. The, that question of whether we can just simply be Christians without being, doing extra stuff, whatever it takes to be identified as a Presbyterian or a Catholic or, or, or whatever. Can we just, just be Christians, And, of course, this is the question that's put forward by what I've described there as the, the restoration ideal. And you'll remember, uh, if you were present for the lesson several weeks ago, we came to the conclusion, remember I gave a parable, a story about a community where various uh, uh, believers, various disciples in a community came together uh, of different brands and they said, let's just, let's just preach the Bible and leave off our peculiar uh, uh, ideas or practices that, that mark us as, as this brand of Christian or that brand of Christian. Let's just preach the Bible. We can surely agree on that. And so the meetings went forward and, and many people believed. And so at the end of the week, there was a divvying up of the, of the, of the, the believers. So you had the Catholic priest stand up there and this minister and, and, and et cetera, et cetera. And you, you just choose with the one that you want to hang out with. But then some said, well, wait a minute, can't we just be Christians? Can't we just be disciples? Without any subtraction or, or addition without any variation. And because that's the very question. Some will some will see it as naive. Some of us see it as the, the bedrock of faithfulness to Jesus Christ to be simply and only built upon the foundation of the prophets and the apostles and Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone. But that brings us to some interesting challenges. Because in our world today, we've come a long way since the first century. We've come a long way even since Constantine. And that's my purpose in sort of mapping out that complex picture there, because it is complicated. And it is a complicated world that we live in. And we need to recognise that and we need to be sympathetic to that. I want to suggest to you that discipleship looked at individually is a process of growth. But when we think about disciples in relation to other disciples, there is also this idea of process or, or, or movement. Um, and I think bounded sets versus centred sets, some of you will be familiar with that, uh, serves well to illustrate this point. Bounded set, and this is the way we typically think. We modern Westerners, if you will, are typically quite dualistic in our thinking. We think either or. Uh, we do that, you know, church, we do church on Sundays and then there's the rest of the week. That's, that's the classic example of, of what I mean by dualism. We divide things. Uh, in our secular society today, there's the real stuff, the physical sciences and whatnot, and then there's the philosophy and the art and the religion. But that's, that's, that's in the realm of the private world, that's your business as long, and it's okay as long as you keep it to yourself, but it doesn't belong in the, in the public domain. Move the mic towards the mouth, or I could move, move me towards the mic. So the bounded set idea here, you'll notice the circle, the classic, those that are in and those that are out. 
And many of us, I don't doubt, think in those terms. I encounter this all the time in the church. You're either in or you're out. And it depends, depends upon where you define that boundary, that circle as to who's in and, and, and who's out. But I want you to notice these words, words of wisdom, I think, typically that we find from C.S. Lewis. The situation in the actual world is much more complicated than that. The world does not consist of 100% Christians and 100% non-Christians. You know, as Lewis is saying, it's not a simple dualism where you either are or you are not. There are people, a great many of them, who are slowly ceasing to be Christians, but who still call themselves by that name. Um, A bit of wit here from C.S. Lewis, uh, coming from a a Church of England background. Some of them are clergymen. There are other people who are slowly becoming Christians, though they do not yet call themselves so. There are people who do not accept the full Christian doctrine about Christ, but who are so strongly attracted by him that they are his in a much deeper sense than they themselves understand. Now this only makes sense if you understand discipleship as not being equivalent to being a Christian, being a child of God. Discipleship is a bigger term. It's reflected in the kind of thinking, maybe I'm showing my age here, there used to be a time in Australia where the assumption was if you were born in Australia, you were Christian because everyone knows Australia is a Christian country. And, and most of us are clever enough to put, you know, add up one plus one equals two. If Australia is a Christian country, if I'm an Australian, that makes me a Christian, doesn't it? And, and I would suggest that that's why census uh, results in the past reflected this huge, huge majority claiming to be Christian who really had no idea uh, or no particular affinity, many of them, apart from I'm born in Australia and that makes me a Christian. Isn't it? Isn't that right? Well, in the broad definition as I'm suggesting the, the disciple, yes, that fits. Doesn't mean you're a child of God. But in some sense, and, and here's the irony, whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not, you have been influenced. You have been infected with Christianity. It is everywhere in our society. And so the idea of a centred set becomes more meaningful. And you'll notice here you've got at the centre Christ. And you'll notice that people are at all different places surrounding Christ. And you'll notice the arrows. Some indicate that people are moving towards Christ Others indicate, even though they might be quite close to Christ, they're moving away from Christ. That process, that movement, that organic image is much closer to reality. Much closer to reality. Let me describe it this way. People often talk about general or natural revelation. And this is the realm of science. This is the realm of wisdom. We look at God's world God the creator. And we can learn a great deal about his creation. We can learn a great deal about God. Natural theology, many people would refer to it. All on the basis of looking at God's world. That's an important source of knowledge. It's kind of bizarre that people think in terms of religion and science and the two are incompatible. That's strange. That's dualism. Science makes perfect sense from a believer's point of view because we have the privilege of studying and appreciating the creator's creation. That's dripping with theology. Christian has no problem with science. Christian has trouble with scientism and and, and naturalist philosophy and whatnot that often is mistaken for science. But science itself, very comfortable fit for the Christian. And so the idea of common grace. God is good. God sustains life. And God is providentially involved 
with his creation. You remember the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, talking about our need to imitate God, to be like God, to love like God. You remember how Jesus illustrates that? Because God sends the rain upon the just and the unjust. God blesses the wicked as well as the good. Common grace. The goodness of God that all of creation, including all of humankind, enjoy as a gift from God. But then there is special revelation and this relates to God as a redeemer where he's revealed things that we could not otherwise know. We think of scriptures, yes, probably the crowning glory of God's self-revelation is in the person of Jesus Christ. And then flowing from that, and this is important to understand, what some have called middle grace, the influence of the church in the Bible upon culture. And notice this statement. Human rights, universal benevolence, the dignity and worth of all people and various other assumptions that lie behind both modern science and Western liberal democracy are not simply a product of natural revelation. The world in the modern West, the world that we inhabit, is not simply the result of God's goodness, generally, or how clever people are, The world in the modern West that we inhabit is the result necessarily and irreversibly of the influence of God's intervention in history through the prophets of old, disseminating God's will through the scriptures and, of course, most dramatically of all, through the incarnation, the establishment and the spread of the church You can be an unbeliever. You can even be a militant atheist in the modern West. But if you are not aware of where you've come from and the world in which we inhabit, then silly you, silly you. You're either ignorant or in denial. Um, very interesting text, Tom Holland, who's a secularist, a historian, no interest whatsoever in, in, in bolstering Christianity. As a secular historian, though, he does a pretty marvellous job of tracing in his book, Making of the Western Mind, the, the way that Christianity over the past 2,000 years has, has impenetrated and formed Western civilization. And the game today of trying to dismiss Christianity as, as, as irrelevant or if it has any relevance, it's been the problem rather than the cure. That's just a silly game from an objective historical point of view. That's the world that we inhabit. That's the world that we inhabit. Now, I want to make some applications. And this comes back, I guess you could call this a sociological uh, overview of the world of Jesus uh, as it's related particularly in the Gospels. You, you had in the outer circle, you'd be recognising I really like circles, concentric circles, etc. You've got the crowd. In fact, outside of the circle, in the white area, you've got the scribes of the Pharisees, the enemies of Christ. Then you've got the crowd. Then moving closer to the bullseye, you've got the disciples, uh, the 70, for example, or, or the 120 that were gathered up in the upper room following Jesus' um, ascension. Then moving closer to the centre, you've got the 12. And then at the heart, you've got the inner circle, Peter, James and John. And I want to suggest to you that this, this, this movement from the outside to the inside is helpful, necessary for our understanding the world in the modern Western world that we inhabit today. When we come to consider discipleship 
our relationship not just with God but with one another. I want to suggest to you that the heart might be described as family. That is, those who are children of God and those who are children of God who share the same sort of values, the same sort of uh, purpose and understanding in life. A classic example of that would be, uh, I sort of alluded earlier to the idea of restoration, which is a particular way of understanding God's purpose, God's will for Christianity. We share that common understanding. And so we feel, we feel at home when we're together and we can engage in, in, in agreed practices together without being conflicted, without being, you know, fussing and fighting, etc. We're comfortable. We're, we're family. But it doesn't stop there. That's not the sum total of the world that we live in, unless you live in Athens, Alabama. Athens, Alabama. I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. When <laughs> Do you know what? The, the, the statistic was, this is going back 35 years ago. It, it may well be different now. At that time, 35 years ago, that county, um, it was claimed that more than 90% of the population of that entire county were members of the church. Motley bunch, so you had different, different variations and whatnot, but they were all members of the body of Christ. Your local butcher was a, was, was a disciple. I would have said Christian, but Larry's making me nervous there. <laughs> uh, some things you never be, will never be the same, Larry. Um, uh, you, you, you know, the, the, the people at the local supermarket, you were being the checkout chick, if you will, was, was, was almost certain to be a Christian. It was, it was, it was amazing. But that's not typical <laughs> of our experience in, in, in general. Beyond family, we've got extended family. And beyond extended family, we've got distant relatives. You know, you might think, think of that, think of Apollos. Before he was instructed in the way of the Lord more perfectly by Priscilla and Aquila. He was a disciple. He was a disciple to the point he could boldly preach about Jesus. But he not yet subjected himself to Christian baptism. That is baptism into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Same with those 12 disciples in Ephesus. That's the world that we live in. Then, of course, outside of that, you've got what I've described as admirers and cultural beneficiaries. That gets back to this image of I'm, I'm Australian. Australia's a Christian country, so I'm a Christian, aren't I? Well, you know what? If you, if you think about it, there are a great many blessings that you enjoy precisely because of the influence of Christ. 2,000 years of it. And the church, oh sure, the church in its various expressions has, 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 has been less than admirable in some cases. But in the aggregate, the blessings far outweigh the negatives. Many of us, all of us, in a country like Australia, whether we appreciate it or not, enjoy the blessings of Christianity. And of course, outside the circle there, you've got your prodigals and your wolves in sheep's clothing and hostile unbelievers, etc. My point is that that entire spectrum from family right out to even perhaps admirers and cultural beneficiaries. He said, yeah, I like, Jesus is okay. I'm not going to get fanatical about it and start going to church or anything. But, you know, Jesus is okay. Even, even, even to that point, they've been influenced by the gospel. And so this full range degrees of discipleship, which leads us to the very practical point of degrees of Christian fellowship. 
How do we view our relationship among those who are within, we would consider within the family? How do we consider our relationship with those who, who you know what, we've got some pretty uncomfortable differences and, and things that I wouldn't want to condone or engage with and, and whatnot, but I still recognise as extended family. There's still the, the connection there and then even on further out to distant relatives, etc. Well, I mean, Jesus makes it very simple for us, doesn't he? The simple answer is we love everybody. We love family, we love the extended family, we love distant relatives, we love admirers and cultural men. We even love those that would be considered themselves enemies of Christ. Love, even your enemies, Jesus says. And I want to conclude with this point in another five minutes, if I may. Um, you know, I was encouraged with... Uh, Toowoomba lectures, um, the brother that was the last to to, uh, to preach, he went long. He went long and I was very encouraged by that. The challenge of filial discipleship, filial discipleship. We've got, you'll notice on one end, love, on the other, humility. And the tension between the two, unity and diversity. And I want just quick summary of Romans 14, just to highlight. I mean, we could spend a day talking about and unpacking Romans 14 and 15, and it's an important context. But just to highlight a couple of points before we conclude. Accept the one whose faith is weak, said Paul, without quarrelling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does for God has accepted them. Continues in verse 12. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or a sister. I'm convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. All food is clean. But it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whatever has doubts, or who, sorry, whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat because their eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. So to summarise Paul's points here, verse 12, he highlights individual accountability. Do you get to see the freeing sense of that? I'm not, I'm not at the end of the day going to stand before God and be accountable for anybody's sin but my own. I am accountable for myself before God. It's not to say I don't have responsibility to, to, my, uh, to my wife and my children and to my brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, to all. Responsibility is one thing, but accountability. At the end of the day, God's going to hold me accountable for me, what I've done in my life. Just as every brother and sister standing beside me will give account to God for their Life. I don't need to make it my business to be your judge and what is it, jury and judge or whatever. That's not my prerogative. That's God's prerogative. That's God's job, and I'm very happy for God to have that job. In fact, I can't think of anybody better to to to, to fulfil that role. Individual accountability. Verse fourteen. 
This is critically important, I think, to understanding the whole flow of Paul's argument here. It is an issue of conscience. It is not who is right or who is wrong, which is the way we generally try and sort it out. Who's right? I'm right. And if I'm right and you're different, then you're wrong. And that, that might be so. Or it might be that you're right and I'm wrong. Or it might be that we're both wrong. Probably fair to say we can't both be right, I guess. And Paul says, oh, that's nice. That's nice, but that's not what I'm talking about. Do you notice in verse 14 what he says? I am convinced, Paul gives his judgment. This is the right or wrong answer, if that's what you're looking for. In this matter, scruples about eating certain types of foods and whatnot. I am convinced, um, uh, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. If push comes to shove and you're going to ask me who's right and who's wrong, then, then the one with the scruples about eating is wrong. Nothing in itself. But Paul says, it's not about right or wrong. If that's where we're going to let our focus be, we're going to be spinning our wheels and, 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 and spitting mud on one another. Paul says it's an issue of conscience. What do you believe is right? What do you believe is wrong? He goes on to point out that love demands mutual consideration. Imposing our will to override another's conscience is to practice, and I, I could put sin here, but, but I like to be polite, unlove. It is to act without love towards another, to override someone's conscience. So, I remember vividly a, 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 an engagement with a, with a brother where, and I'll use this illustration because it's meaningless to most of us here, probably all of us here, some, for various reasons, some people at some point in the church have had uh, scruples about separating into different classes. I mean, most of us will think, well, it's pretty strange, but, but that would be a problem. But, but that's been a problem for a very few uh, Christians in the past. And um, a, a brother raised that as an illustration to me when I was when I was expressing my understanding of Paul's teaching here, and I said, "So, so you're telling me if somebody came in the congregation and they and they had a scruple about going into different classes, that that you would you would just say, okay, we won't do separate classes." And, I don't know. Does it sound radical to say if that if that was there? conscientiously, biblically, biblically informed conclusion and they believe to do different would be sin. Yeah, I'm not going to cause them to sin. For something that I just consider as a liberty, classes or not classes, it doesn't matter. I might think as an expedient, classes make much more sense. But at the end of the day, my opinion about a class structure is not going to take precedence over my consideration, my love towards a brother. Now, I know the, the brother that I expressed that to, he was scandalised. He said, you're a fool. You're a fool. And I thought, well, maybe I just thought, well, Paul calls it love. Paul calls it respecting the conscience. Not respecting the preferences of another person, this is all a conscientiously held belief on pains of sin. That's why so very often in the church it becomes an issue of division when it comes to collective activity, the things that we do together, because the nature of collective activities, we're all in it together. And so to practice one thing is necessarily to sweep up everybody in that issue. And that's where we need to hear one another and be sensitive to one another. It doesn't stop us from studying through issues and whatnot. And, and who knows, people might change, but you know what? Even if they don't, nothing's stopping us from acting in love. Keep your opinions to yourself. Keep your opinions to yourself. And a warning to two parties, you'll notice. To anyone whose actions cause another to stumble... 
And that's not just to say behave in a way or do something or say something that's going to upset somebody. We're not talking about that. We're talking about doing something that would cause the other person to violate their conscience and thereby sin. We don't put a person in that position. And secondly, to anyone whose actions violate their own conscience. If you've got a conscience about something, you don't go ahead and do it because if you do override, ignore your conscience and go ahead, that's sin. That's sin. Now, obviously, way out of time and there's a whole lot more that we could sort of say about this. Um, I want to conclude with this statement. I think it's a pretty good statement by a scholar named uh, Michael Heiser. Um, And again, this might be a a bit of a launching thing for, for lessons in the future. What does it mean to have the mind of Christ and then to be of one mind as a community of believers? Does it mean everyone believes the same things down to the last detail? We've just seen in the church at Rome, that's not the case. Some had scruples about certain dietary issues, some didn't. No. Clearly, clearly the answer is no. The Bible speaks of unity, not uniformity. A better way to understand being of one mind is that every member of the community is pursuing the same goal. You see how we've come full circle back to this issue of discipleship per Larry's definition to be like Jesus. We're all striving to be like Jesus. The goal is harmony, not unanimity. Do you see how Paul left things at Rome? He left things so that some could go on thinking that, that according to their conscience, that it's wrong to eat certain things. And then he left it very messy, loose ends. Another, another group could go on thinking it doesn't matter what you eat. You notice Paul didn't bring it, hammer it down and say, no, you've got to take one side or the other. And don't talk to me about this love business that's just sitting on the fence. That's not Paul. And I would hasten to add, that's not Jesus. It's the radical nature of unconditional, self-sacrificial love. And if we struggle with that, maybe we need to take a look inside and ask ourselves, do I really understand Jesus, do I really understand the radical demands of the gospel? Do I really understand what Jesus meant when he said, if you want to be my disciple, you take up your cross, you die to self and come follow me. The goal is harmony, not unanimity, in pursuing Christ-likeness and living in community together as believers.